Welcome to the Chris World Podcast on iCode Media. Today, I had a great conversation with the one and only Dr. John Rampakis, and we discussed, of course, clinical topics and how that relates to building and coding concepts. And specifically, we discussed dry eye and point of care testing, utilizing things like osmolarity and inflammadry in our practices in ways that helps us better manage patients, but also helps us generate revenue for the practice. So there's a lot of uh, fun conversation to have. Uh, I'm really grateful that, that Dr. Rampakis sat down with me and to have that conversation. And uh, it really kind of underscores the value of the services that we provide and how we can look at taking the model of care of a total patient, as opposed to just looking at routine versus medical. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. As always, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, and support those who support us. I think we're in the best time to practice optometry. Yes, on this podcast, we've discussed the expansion of corporate entities, vertical integration, online retailers, and unproven technology. But I truly believe if we're taking care of our patients and offering the newest and best options for their eye health and vision, these disruptors will only serve as a clear distinguisher between what patients can get from them and what they expect from us. So I was excited to find out that CooperVision recently received approval for its new Biofinity Toric multifocal contact lenses from the US FDA. In our practice, we've had a ton of success for our patients in terms of comfort, vision, and stability with proven optical designs of CooperVision's Biofinity Toric. The Biofinity Toric Multifocal combines that Toric design and its rapid stabilization with the flexibility and customization of the Biofinity Multifocal lens. This provides our presbyopic astigmatic patients with an excellent option for minimizing their dependence on glasses. Check out the show notes and link to CooperVision's website for contact lens parameters and more release information. John, you and I were talking about before this idea of how optometrists really need to think about themselves differently than what you commonly see. So explain, first of all, what I'd like to go back and do is say, when did you, when did you first see that this was a problem for the profession and, and say, I'm going to do something about this? Because you've been in the game for a long time and, and everybody knows John Rampakis. So, well, I've been, you know, out there in the world doing this for about 35 years or so. And, uh, you know, when I first graduated from optometry school, you know, I was a cold start practice just like anybody. And shortly thereafter, you know, we became participants in Medicare with full recognition as being a physician. And uh, my practice, like many of my colleagues, we were in the throes of expanding scope of practice using diagnostics, using medications for treatment, things like that, starting to do uh, minor surgical procedures and in fact, I was the very first OD in uh, the state of Oregon to get paid by Blue Cross Blue Shield for punctal occlusion mm. after winning a long, drawn-out argument with a nurse practitioner. And uh, you know, what, so, sorry to stop you, but tell me about that argument. What was what was that about? Um, she said that that's a surgical procedure, and we're not allowed to do it. And I said, no, it's a surgical code, but the procedure itself is non-invasive, and it's like just in, like in you know inserting a plug into a bathtub that we're you know retaining a pool of tears and uh after some further discussion you know she said oh i understand now hmm. and and that kind of broke open the dam for us to getting paid by a major carrier other than medicare for uh medical procedures so you know i've always been an advocate of just full scope practice uh for ods I, you know we work so hard legislatively there's so many of us i mean we provide 77 percent of all the first-time care in the 
you know, country for first-time encounters for patients. And uh, it, uh, it's our duty, really, to you know, provide that frontline care wherever we can, all the way across the board. One of the things that I think is interesting is that a lot of times this, and this is what motivates me as well, is I, I see that providers think that they've got to do everything all at once and they have to just do what the what the vision plan tells them to do or what the you know what the patient wants them to do and then that then because they feel like that's dictating their level of care then they stop so you've been doing this for years and years how do how do you break through how many people are still left to to capture that message what do you think about that i think i guess if i had to summarize the endpoint first and then kind of go back on it is that I think we have to stop practicing to the level of somebody's insurance. We can't let somebody's deductible determine the care that we get, that we provide. We can't let their structure of copay or whatever their um, plan dictates, you know, we can't let that dictate what we do for them, right? Our job is to pre present the facts plainly and simply. So irrespective of how the patient enters the office, they come in under a managed vision care plan, they come in because they have a frank chief complaint of a medical problem, it's immaterial, right? Our job mm -hmm. is to do what? It's to do a good intake, it's to do appropriate testing, so that means appropriate type of exam and level of exam, it's to diagnose and then to have a treatment plan. Or I guess if we don't treat that particular area, then to refer to somebody who does. And I think people get coverage and reimbursement issues confused with what they're actually doing. Mm -hmm. You know, a comprehensive exam, Chris, is the same comprehensive exam, whether I get paid by Medicare or VSP right. or IMED, right? It's a 920X4. My responsibilities under that are defined by the CPT, and it says you've got to do all of these different things. So at the end of the examination, I don't know why we still have this thought that, well, they came under VSP, so all I can do is prescribe glasses or contact lenses for the patient. If Mrs. Smith comes in and she's myopic and she's presbyopic and she's got dry eye and some early signs of macular degeneration, my obligation is to say, Mrs. Smith, you've got myopia, you've got presbyopia, explain what those are, then talk to her about what I discovered about dry eye and macular degeneration, and then provide a treatment plan to say, for those two types of things, we're gonna have you return to our office, mm -hmm. do some additional testing so that way we can define the type of dry eye and severity of dry eye, and take a further look or do some diagnostic testing to determine the extent of the macular degeneration, and then we can come to you with a plan, right? Why, I, why do you think that conversation is hard for docs to have? I mean, why do you think, because my, my experience has been that that, that next level of, of saying, I'm going to, having the confidence to say, I'm going to have you back to evaluate this further. Dentists don't have that problem. You know, uh, medical doctors don't have that problem. So why do optometrists have that, have that general problem of, of saying that? I think you said it best. You had the confidence to say it. I think a lot of uh, ODs, um, I don't want to say have a lack of confidence. I think they struggle with knowing what to say, how to say it, and when to say it during the course of the encounter that they can make a compelling argument to a patient, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we have to communicate transparently enough so that way the patient understands, wow, this is something that's going on with me. And I think the optometrist is always dealing with the perception that, well, the patient thinks I do glasses and contact lenses rather than thinking that I provide full scope eye care right? From yeah. the front of the eye to the back of the eye. 
And I think that those who are very successful in having full scope practices don't struggle with that argument. They don't worry about the economics so much. They take care of the patient first, and then they have other professionals in their office that help them with the economic side of it, right? Whether you have a refractive coordinator, a dry eye concierge, whatever, you have a great billing manager or front desk person that says, Mrs. Smith, today, here's what we did. You have two types of coverage. You have a refractive coverage <laughs> and you have medical coverage. Your refractive coverage paid for your general examination, your refraction, and you have a benefit for part of the treatment plan that your doctor talked about today with your glasses. But for your return testing, you have a medical copay of $55, right? Or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And that will cover your office visit. And then other testing that we do, we'll submit to your plan. And that'll be covered based upon the diagnoses that the doctor arrives at. And just laying it out there. I think we worry about it too much. I mean, my God, we're all healthcare consumers. When we go to the doctor, nobody ever nope. stops and talks to us about nope. any of that stuff. They say, John... Here's what we need to do. Here's what we found. We need to do this test or this test, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah it's amazing. It's amazing the disconnect I think that some people have right. about about this. You know, about wanting to have patients come back, and we never question it from any other provider. You know, you don't go to the dentist and they clean your teeth, and then the same day they fill your teeth. Right. right? They say we're going to have you back, and we're going to do this procedure, or we're going to investigate this further. And so you mentioned dry eye, and and um, of course I think that is an area that doctors tend to be reactionary to like, I'm not going to manage this until some patients, a patient is begging me to do it. So I see all the time, you know, even, even places where they are advertising that they're dry eye centers, you know, they'll buy websites and dry eye center. And I'll see a patient that was going there that is already based on dues in, in stage two and stage three, and all they're getting is uh, artificial tears. Right. And so one of the things I think about with dry eye and, and dues too specifically, um, I think confuses this a little bit, is they're so it's so comprehensive. There's so much to think about that people get bogged down and being like, I don't know, just try some artificial tears. If that doesn't work. Here you go. Use, use Restasis. Or that didn't work. Try Zydra. Or worst case scenario, we're going to do tear care or Lipiflow or whatever the, you know, the, the widget right. of the day is. Right. And by the way, I, I think widgets are great. But they are not my dry eye treatment. They are a piece of that dry eye treatment. And so the one way that I know how to, which one of those, and I, I would include um, any treatment as a widget. Like I would include pharmaceuticals as sure. a widget, right? Right. But the one way I know that each widget is going to be effective is if I break down my, my exam and delve deeper into the different testing things that we have available to us. Sure. I mean, you think about any medical treatment that you get, no matter where it is, right? I have a test that establishes a baseline. I have treatment. Then I measured against the test again to see if the treatment's effective. Correct. Right? I think in the, in the area of dry eye, the amount of innovation that's there today is absolutely, you know, incredible. And so one of the things that I um, always tell people is, you know, it, I, well, in fact, I want to back up just a bit because there is a um, survey that was done at the OMS meeting this past December in uh, Disney World, mm -hmm. right? And I don't know the numbers exactly, but I'll give you the gist of it. The vast majority of individuals said that they actively are diagnosing and treating dry eye. Okay. Yet when asked how many of you are using a questionnaire in your office, <laughs> it was below 10%. Wow. When they said, do you have a diagnostic device for... MGD or an imaging device, something along those lines, below 20%. Wow. How many of you have a treatment device? 
below 20%, right? But yet they said, the great preponderance of them said they were actively treating dry eye. So it went to the treatment modalities. What are you doing? Hot packs, yeah. artificial tears, right? And some of them were doing occlusion. Very yeah. few were doing anything else. So what I always look at is I look at incidence and prevalence in the marketplace. So when I start to think about how do I build a practice and how do I really want to grow what we're doing? And if I just use typical AOA statistics, the average OD's income total in, right, with full scope practice of doing whatever they do, glasses, contacts, and any medical that they do, is still hovering around about one hundred and fifty to one hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars. If year. they own their practice, is that what you're saying, or yeah. does it matter? Um, I this would be a blended total okay. um, from the AOA. Okay. Okay. So let's just call it one hundred and sixty grand overall. So I sit there and I think about what dry eye brings to the table. So if we go ahead and use a conservative study that says maybe there's twenty-five percent incidence overall in the population. So we have three hundred and thirty million people in the United States, of which you're going to have twenty-five percent have you know, dry eye or ocular surface disease, signs and symptoms, whatever it may be. And yet we're not using tools that are free to increase or open that gateway in our practice to yeah. that disease. So how do I do that first? Create an awareness. So what can I do? Patient comes into the office, every patient, I don't care if they're new or established, they should be filling out a dry eye questionnaire. And if I have a positive sign or symptom, you know what? I can have a standing order at my front desk to do point of care testing. Things like an, you know, MMP9 right. used by Inflamadry, I can have that being done standard, right? I'm um, meeting all the barriers of the rules because I have a positive sign and for clinical lab testing, I, I can have a standing order that goes for doing that. So now that I've got a positive or negative test marker, I get a binary answer for that test so I can have a positive or negative marker for inflammation. That can help guide the rest of my diagnostic and treatment protocol for that particular patient, not necessarily at that exam. It's yep. just an additional data point that I can go ahead and put in. So now that's in my head while I'm doing my slit lamp exam or now having my discussions with the patient doing their case history. Tell me about what's going on. You know, um, are you experiencing fluctuations in your vision when you blink? How about end of day? Are you on your device? How many hours? Whatever it may be that your particular area that you want to focus on. But what that does is it opens the gateway for me to have a conversation to get a better idea of quality of life issues because so many patients, you know, with chronic problems, they just assimilate that and they never mention anything. And I can't tell you how many doctors I talk to that says, I don't have any dry eye people. Mm. And I say, really? And, you know, you go interview the patients and say, oh yeah, my eyes bother me all the time. But you get this chicken in the egg. Well, the doctor never asked me anything, so I never said anything. And the doctor says, well, the patient never said anything, so I never asked anything. And you get caught in this revolving circle that doesn't get you anywhere, right? But now if I have a clinical test that I can now bring up and say, hey, Chris, we did this test, right? It shows that you have a positive finding for inflammation. I want to talk about some of the typical signs and symptoms that maybe you're experiencing that maybe we haven't you know, yeah. discussed today. And then that opens up an entire diagnostic world for us, right? To be able to do additional things. And then, as you said, if I go to my protocol, as in a dues two, I can now start to be specific. Have you used artificial tears before? Tell me which ones you've used. Here's some common samples. Maybe just pick out the bottle or show me what you used. Have you done this or have you done this? Well, our next step is maybe going to be a pharmaceutical widget, mm -hmm. right? Yep. I'm going to go ahead and prescribe an anti-inflammatory because we have a positive sign for inflammation or I may go to a different type of treatment because maybe I want to start looking at hygiene. So I may evaluate the lid margins. I may 
debride. I may, you know, start to do thermal applications, whatever it may be, right? Nutraceuticals, however I want to approach it. But now I've got a starting point for a conversation and additional diagnostic testing that I can then, you know, say, let's follow this treatment regimen. Let's retest again in 90 days, see how we're doing. My gosh, your inflammation markers down significantly, yes. right? I mean, yes. that's good care. Yes. And it, and it gives you, so I want to delve in a little deeper into a few points, but the it's good care and it gives you so many other data points to know whether or not a patient is improving. I I, um, I think about, you talked about a, a symptom score and then the more information I have, if I, it doesn't take a lot, right? If I have a symptom score, if I have an in, uh, inflammatory drive, for example, osmolarity, for example, I stay in the patient um, and then I look at their oil gland function, I can be pretty confident mm -hmm. that I know where that patient is going to fall within the spectrum of treatment with DUS2. That's not that hard. Right. It's not that hard to, um, it's not that hard to be able to figure out, okay, if I see inflammation, I know that we can we can uh, reduce that inflammation with a widget. Right. And if I see oil gland that are not functioning, I know I can improve that with a widget. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't, it's not the case that that I feel like, well, I'm just sort of and that's why I think people don't like dry eye, is they feel like I, you know, I can never really know if, if a patient's improving. But if you have these things in place, if I have a four plus inflamadry and then I start them on an anti-inflammatory medication, we'll call it, just say restasis, then I can know if they come back, then, and they're a two plus, right? Uh, then that's part of the whole picture. Right. If I grade that before. And it gives you confidence because the patient may come back. If I asked the speed, if I, if I talk, if looked at speed and let's say they had a severe speed, let's say it was an 18 mm -hmm. and they come back over two months and now it's nine. And I asked the patient, one of the, you know, if all I did was ask the patient, how do you feel? They're like, I don't know about the same, but now I've got a speed, I've got inflammatory measurements, I've got staining measurements that I documented well. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those patients, as you know, all they want to do, well, all they want to hear from you is like, I think I'm doing better. And you can say, look, the reason that we use the symptom score is that these conditions improve gradually, just like they get worse gradually. So we can know without having to rely so much on what happened yesterday or today, we can know what's happening over time. And we can know whether or not you've improved. And with things like inflammatory and osmolarity and and um, and speed scores, we can know really confidently when half the time those patients say, ah, I think I'm doing a little bit better, but they just want to, they, a lot of what they want to hear from you is, look, these things are all improving. These measurements are all mm -hmm. just like when they go to their primary care doctor and they put them on metformin and they come back three months later and their A1C is, is down. Absolutely. That's exactly what they want to see. See, I actually, so you know, I'm a numbers geek, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, you know, I'm, I, my world is numbers, whether it's coding or whether it's economics, that's all, you know, I look at things. And so- I really think that by doing the testing appropriately, by starting to get, you know, having a questionnaire for everybody, having standing orders, getting that piece of information that helps me to now design an appropriate diagnostic, what am I doing? I'm actually making more economical use of healthcare. I'm not abusing it. I'm using their benefits appropriately, but I'm applying a targeted method. I'm not throwing everything at the wall at right. the same time and see what sticks. Right. I'm going to say, okay, we have a hygiene issue and we have some inflammation. Okay, you know what? Punctal plugs are not going to be the primary thing that I'm going to do That's right. to solve their symptom because I know that I'm going to have some inflammatory cytokines that could complicate the situation. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and prescribe an anti-inflammatory and I may do a blefex. I may do some thermal warming. I may do expression, I, whatever it may be, but it's going to be very targeted therapy Correct. based upon a targeted set of diagnostics and symptoms. So that way I can provide 
the best relief in the most expedient fashion, right? By yep. doing the, by using the best tools or widgets that I've got. Yep. Um, you know, I see so much that so many times that people want to go ahead and get all of this different stuff and, and you don't need everything, right? right? You, you know, you can grow into dry eye. You don't have to have every tool under the sun from the start, but there's some essential things you need. And I, and I firmly believe that you need to have a questionnaire. You need to have point of care testing for osmolarity, for inflammation, to be able to start to gauge where you are at that, in, in that cascade, right? Yeah. Because dues is really great. I've got my four categories. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I, if I don't do any investigational work, where do I start? Yep. Do I just start at three? No, I really can't do that because the carriers are going to say, you didn't meet all the medical necessity burdens to get to there. Yes. So do I start at two? I don't know. Am I being repetitive? Do I start, you know, so I'm doing the very best job I can by using the tools that I have at my, uh, you know, uh, disposal. I think the, you know, the thing that I found is um, many practitioners don't have their CLIA certification. They're afraid yeah. to spend the couple of hundred bucks for a couple of year license to be able to do CLIA tests in their practice. And it's simple to get, right? The application form, very simple, very inexpensive. And then once you have your CLIA certification, you know, you have your clinical lab uh, designation and a doctor in your office is designated as a clinical lab director. That's all you have to do. Um, pay your money and you're good. Now you have these tools open to you. And, you know, they're, they're not money makers, right? I mean, they don't pay great. But, you know, you get a, for Inflamadrive, for example, you get $11.53, yep. you know, per, per test, per eye. So, you know, it's enough to cover your cost, put a little bit in your pocket. But most importantly is I can have a standing order. It's done on everybody. I now can start taking advantage of the actual incidence of prevalence of a disease state, right? Yep. And now really start to address it and recognize the economic benefits for the practice while still providing great care for your patients. Yeah. Because they're not getting it anywhere else. That's right. That's right. So, so I want to take a little bit of a step back. And, and so you mentioned CLIA and, and how you have to have a CLIA waiver to do a lot of these mm -hmm. um, in-office point of care tests. So osmolarity and Flamadry, those are tests that would be CLIA waived right. tests. And so if, let's say, um, I'm listening to you and I, and I say, okay, I don't have this. What do I need to do? I mean, essentially it's Google CLIA waiver. Google CLIA waiver. Go to CMS's website, download the form, pay your couple hundred bucks for your two year, yep. you know, application and you're rolling. Yep. I mean, it's really not that hard. There is some state issues, you know, with different states, but you know, not a difficult process to go through. And I know most of the companies that, you know, are in this like Quidel and TierLab, they'll aid you with yeah. your you know, application process. I mean, they're there to be your advocate so that way you can provide great care yeah. you know, for your patients. So that part, I think, you know, shouldn't be really complicated. I think the hardest part is just getting somebody to overcome their inertia and, and move oh, forward. Yeah. Oh, man. That, that's every time I think that's the biggest issue. And for some reason, I think docs that can really, um, that are really kind of advancing in their care, you know, the, the ones that are really running their practice well, I think it's, it's because they know how to overcome their inertia. They, right. they know how to say, I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to do this next thing because mm -hmm. I think it's better for the patient. And one of the things that, that you brought up as well is, well, I only make a couple, so one of the pushbacks I get yeah. on, well, I'm not going to do this test and, and I'll, or I'll get questions on like, well, should I get osmolarity or should I get inflammatory? It's like, get them both, right. use them both. And the beauty of, of all of that is that you're paying for what you use. And so, right. the, so like you're not, you're not having to have this big initial like outlay. Yeah. You, you're going to buy a box, right? right? Or you might buy a bunch of boxes, but you're going to have this initial outlay, but you're, you're not, you're, you're not having to buy this technology that 
you're never going to be able to use, you're getting paid for what you use. Correct. And it might only be a couple bucks here or there. Mm -hmm. But I think that the important part, which you brought up is it allows us to be more accurate with the, the treatment uh, that we're getting. But I also want to dig into a little bit um, since you're here and get your perspective on the more of those tests that we're ordering, one of the things that people forget about a, a lot, and it'll be more important as the ch 2021 changes mm -hmm. come because MDM is going to be that yeah. or time is going to be the major driver. Correct. But is this idea of complexity. So I think most optometrists have been guided to ignore complexity. So, and I'll let you expand on what complexity is. People have heard me talk about, but expand on what yeah. complexity is. And when you're looking at medical decision-making and you think of number of diagnosis and treatment options, complexity of, of ordered tests, and then the risk to the patient of yeah. the treatment or uh, those sorts of things, people sort of ignore complexity. But complexity can actually come into play in certain circumstances. And I think this is oh, absolutely one of them. I agree. I mean, so if you look at it, moderate complexity says that you have to have, you know, a, cr a single chronic condition, right? With a, hopefully a beneficial outcome. Use of a prescription medication, for example. And of course, you know, MDM currently in, in 2020, where we're at right now, when we're starting to do that, remember that typically our scores are going to be in the, in the lower range as I do that, because I have to have two out of those three in order to get a score for that. And then a, that combines with my exam and physical uh, or my case history. In 2021, when we start to change completely, where the physical examination is not scored at all. Yeah. And the history you know, is not I mean, scored at all. It's going to be turned on its head. Yeah. But the benefit that we're going to be able to get from that is that as we start to apply the new rules, you're going to start to find that what you're doing in the world of eye care is going to be more advanced, yes. right? We're dealing with chronic, you know, and typically concomitant conditions that are going on as well. So you're, you're going to have allergy and dry eye going on, right? You may be having, you know, macular degeneration, diabetes, and, you know, other types of things that you're all managing in the same patient, right? Yep. Because if you look at the patient profiles, there's a lot of similarities, you know, that, that run through that. So I think that you're going to see compensation go up. Now, right now, when I do my economic models, I just say, you know, if I do interviews with uh, ODs and I look at charts and things like that, most ODs are doing, in addition to their annual exam, they're doing three 99,000 codes, let's say, during the course of a given year. Per patient. Per patient. So okay. typically for a workup and then a couple of follow-ups. If you start to apply the economics to that, so 99213 today, <laughs> nationwide average is about $75.03, yep. right? So, you know, so I'll call it 75 bucks. So you're getting $225 per patient per year, yeah. right? And if you have a practice that you have, you know, four to 5,000 active patients in that, and you're having 25% of those having that, all of a sudden that's just cut another couple hundred thousand dollars, yeah. right? That, yeah. that is starting to come in. It's mind blowing. If I start to add, you know, point of care testing for that 25% at, you know, let's just call it $25, you know, for doing inflammatory, uh, I think I'd get 44, $45 total for doing osmolarity. And I start to add those up, you know, little numbers with frequency add up very, you know, right. quickly. Right. And now if I start to do even, you know, a thermal lid uh, procedure or, one or two bluff X's a week, those types of things. I mean, it's shocking that I can take that average income of 160,000 bucks, add another $280,000 to it, less work, right? I mean, interesting clinical stuff, exciting yes. you know, uh, arena to be in right now. And best of all, high levels of patient satisfaction yes. because you have identified something 
and been able to successfully treat and manage something that they have been dealing with for a long, long time in yes. most cases, but just didn't know what it was. They couldn't put a label on it. And their previous doctor said, well, use a hot pack and use a, uh, you know, artificial tears. Well, I tried that for two weeks. I got tired of doing the hot packs because they got cold so fast. Didn't know <laughs> what I was supposed to do. Right. And then artificial tears, you know, they didn't really make a big difference. And I had to put them in three or four times a day. And, you know, I still do it, but don't really get any relief. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you're sitting there going, I'm approaching this totally differently. I'm being proactive versus reactive, yep. as you started off saying today. I'm doing targeted therapy based upon targeted findings that I'm getting. And it's making me much more efficient and much more effective in the overall care paradigm. Well, and the, and the other thing that I think about, John, is that when you're adding more of those levels of care, you're managing more of those diseases. The other point I was trying to make is that now you go from a, um, a level three code because your complexity, your number of diagnosis is elevated. And now you're into a level four code potentially. Mm -hmm. And so you have to remember that you might not just be making the difference on what you're billing. Like let's say I'm billing an inflammatory and I'm making three bucks mm -hmm. and per, per eye. And then, um, and it's just the $6 that I made extra on that patient. It's actually could be the case that I'm now qualifying for a level four code. Absolutely. And now what's the difference? You, you quoted the national average for 99213s, but you probably know right off the top of your head, what's the difference? <laughs> I don't actually. Okay. I think it's 108, but yeah. you know, so, something so like that. So you're talking 20, 25 bucks? Yeah. And, now it's, and that's real money. You do well, that over time. The, the funny thing is, right, is that I think people are scared of the numbers when they look at coding, hmm. right? They go, oh my God, I heard I'm never supposed to do a level four. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, they yeah. get into all of this. And here's what I tell everybody. I said, you know what you need to do? The coding will take care of itself. Take care of the person in front of you. Do your Absolutely. history that's appropriate. Don't do a comprehensive history on everybody. They don't need it. Do an appropriate history on every single person. Do an appropriate physical exam on every person and do appropriate clinical decision-making on every patient. And after you're done, if your visit says 99214 instead of 99213, then what's your audit risk? Zero. Zero. Why? Yep. Because your clinical record is going to substantiate everything that you did. But you don't go into it saying, I'm going to do a 99214. Right. Right. You go into it saying, Chris is an individual person that I have to make an individual case history exam and medical decision making about because his family history or personal history or objective, subjective things are different. I just take care of Chris. That's yeah. all I need to do. Yeah. And then I score Chris and I do it. And then I go on to my next one. And then pretty soon I'm familiar enough yes. that- I don't have to worry about the fear of doing something wrong because my medical record will always back up whatever I did. So if you take care of the patient, the code will always take care of itself yes. no matter what. I absolutely, totally agree. And, and yet the problem is that most people, when they code, as you know, they say, feels like a level two. <laughs> I mean, when you look at distribution curves, right? Like oh, it's, our profession is horrible, horribly skewed to the left, yeah. right? We undercode and then we also undercharge. Right. But, but so we're getting dinged in those two areas. So they're, they're like, ah, I'll, I'll do this when I'm talking. You know, how many times did you see a patient with an acute red eye, a, a new problem, um, a new pay, let's say, say it's an established patient with a new problem, right? You prescribe a medication and they forget that, that the American Academy of Ophthalmology has been very clear that a prescription medication is going to put you into a moderate risk category for, for medications. It says it right in there. That's right. And so, and so then they're, they're like, and I'll ask them, how many times have you billed for a patient that comes in, you prescribe Tobradex for, and uh, for a red eye that's acute, and you bill a level two, bunch of hands go up. Oh, yeah. Level three, bunch of hands go up. And then I'll show them that, and they're like, whoa. Yeah. 
They just don't realize it. It's, it's, well, go beyond that, right? So it's not only the pure empirical value of the office visit, but it's also the time factor, right? So I think about it this way. If I'm starting to work with a patient and, you know, I look at an hour differently than everybody does, right? I look at an hour as how many opportunities do I have? So the typical person out there, and I'll, if, I, if you want me to use AOA data, we'll Let's say one comprehensive exam every 37 minutes yep. nationwide. Let's just go down to one comprehensive exam every 30 minutes, give people the benefit of the doubt. Sure. So two an hour. Average compensation by a vision care plan is 55 bucks. So now I'm making $110 an hour gross. Take away my chair cost, average cost about 99 bucks, yep. right? So congratulations, I'm making 10 bucks an hour net right? Yes. 10 bucks an hour. I might as well work at Taco Bell. Yep. You know? So what am I going to do? If I start to look at providing medical eye care, whatever your point of entry is, dry eye I think is a great opportunity, yep. but there may be others, is now I start to do that 99203. Okay. Initial visit. Maybe that's 108, 110 bucks in that ballpark. I follow up. I do a 992131 visit. Maybe next visit's a 99214. But those things are taking significantly less time right? They, they could be physician yes. time of nine minutes, 12 minutes. Well, how many nine minute, you know, 10 minute, you know, intervals do I have in an hour? I've got six of them. Right. So if I took six times 108 bucks, right now, all of them sudden going, I've got $664 per hour against that same $99 cost. Yep. All of a sudden now I'm profitable 550 bucks an hour. Okay. That's all right. Yep. And guess what? There's very little cost of goods. In yes, all of that it's care. well. It's your intellectual property, yeah, that's right. right? That's your education paying off in spades because right. I'm not having to pay cost of goods sold. And I have people argue with me, and I can sell you know numerous pairs of glasses oh, and things. And gosh. I always say, I say, you know what? Here's what I want you to do: do both. Yes, it's yes. not an either or situation. Yes. It's a take care of your entire patient. It's. I'll devolve to one thing. It's kind of an interesting deal. We've all talked about the medical model. Yep, I think it is the biggest bunch of BS that I've ever heard, putting a label on eye care like that. Why don't we just have the total patient care model? That patient comes in and you're a doctor of optometry. Your job is one thing, diagnose and treat everything that you know about that patient or diagnose and refer if you don't treat it. That's your job. It's not to say, I just do glasses and or contacts. I don't do just medical care unless you have a particular subspecialty, but your job is to that's what you do. You're on the front lines. You're a primary care provider. And that's really what you have to focus on. Yeah. I think, I mean, I've heard that conversation so many times that I actually have a talk that I give about, about um, you know, how do you understand if I provide this other care? Because you have to get people almost out of the mindset of, you know, I know, because I, I can ask the room, if you have a patient that is X insurance plan and they come in and they buy glasses, they know almost almost to the T how much the, how much they're going to make from that from mm-hmm. that patient but if if i ask you if you treat that patient's dry eye how much are you going to make from that patient they have their eyes glaze over yeah and and it's and it's that gap that of thinking i know this and i don't know how to get paid for that so i'm going to default to this cuz i can see two uh, two right. of these patients in the same time it takes me to see this and what I do is I try to get them to, to think of, of a very common, easy to calculate number. And it might, might, might not be right, but the number I like is gross revenue per OD hour. Mm-hmm. And it, because it's, it's relatively standardized. And if you assume that you're full, right? Assume that your entire schedule is full, then all you have to do is deliver a service in that period of time that aggregate generates you more than your per hour re- mm-hmm. revenue. 
And and so when they start thinking about that, then I th- I, th- I start to th- see them wheels turns like okay, even if we're using Medicare data national averages. And even if I still take that same 30 minute time slot, you can see how even with using punctal plugs or another widget, very quickly you can get up to your, so essentially in the average revenue on MBA metrics for independent Mm -hmm. practices is $402 per hour, Mm -hmm. 2018 data. So all you have to be able to do in that half hour slot, if you are that average, is generate um, $202 Mm -hmm. for that half hour slot. And now you're above. So if, if you were doing under that for your for your glasses, or if that's exactly what you're doing, now all of a sudden it's more more effective for your practice. Sure. Not not to mention that you have now loyal patients that aren't going to go online or aren't going to go to a another practice to seek their mm-hmm. care. And it's really challenging to get people to think about it like that. Oh, I wrote an article back in Review of Optometry in, gosh, I think it was October of 2013. So <laughs> dated, okay? So when I say dated, the reason I say that is to put it in perspective is that the diagnostic tools and treatment tools that we have today for ocular surface disease, we didn't have back in yeah. 2013, okay? So I want you to think of greater opportunity than what I'm gonna tell you. So I, the title of the article was The Economics of Apathy, right? Oh yeah. So for people to say, you know, you're not doing this because you're just apathetic or complacent or whatever it may be, but you know, when you think that the population has 25% to 60% of dry eye and you go, I'm not seeing that in my practice. Yeah. Are you complacent? Are you apathetic? Are you not asking questions? You know, whatever it may be. So I looked at three disease states only, did not take into <laughs> comprehensive exams, did not take into contact, uh, did not, excuse me, did not take into spectacle um, uh, revenue at all. So just uh, re- uh, disease-related services. Okay. Contact lens dropout, ocular allergy, and dry eye. Based off of well-documented, well-referenced um, sources, did the financial calculations. The average OD, if they just treated to the level of known incidence and prevalence for those three things, would be making $538,000 per year Yeah. before a single pair of glasses, Yeah. right, in doing things. And I just sit there and I go, I know it's not, I know economics are important to people. I know for most people, it's not the driving force, right? Most people that I meet really want to give good care, right? but they don't know what to do, how to do it, when to do it. They're afraid. Um, gosh, I didn't, that CLIA thing, it's confusing. You know, it's not. It's super, super it's simple. Super easy. And all the companies that you work with, Quidel, TierLab, they have tools to help you along the way. The reimbursement guides that they have, for example, I work with Quidel to develop some reimbursement guides. Just a nice little one-sheeter that shows you this is exactly what how you code it. This is a modifier that you use, yep. you know, based on the individual carrier to get paid for the test. Not difficult stuff, but I think it's the fear of failure, um, whatever it may be that stops them from developing that momentum and going forward. Because I know most people really are excited and engaged. I think that they just don't either A, know how to start, or they get something and they overcomplicate it, or don't know how to integrate it into their existing practice flow. Yeah. So so let me ask you this then. Um, if we go back to that, let's let's go back to, because we've used this example within ClioWave, and, and we'll use Quidel and, and Inflamadry as an example. When you have seen the light bulbs go off, what is the what is the effective way that you've or the effective thing that doctors do to say I'm going to get over this hesitation? How do they? What would advice would you be would you give to somebody to say I'm going to get over this hesitation to just do it? Yeah. I mean, what's the what what is that magic? So I think from my experience in it, number one, they're surprised 
when they start to use a questionnaire 100% of the time, they're really surprised at the amount of symptoms that they're gathering from patients. I never knew people were, you know, we asked those questions before, but not in the same way, yeah. right? So they're really surprised by the demand. So the second thing is, is that they struggle with how to integrate things into their practice. And so what I always tell them to do is, I want you to go back to your staff and work as a team and find out what do you think the best way is. We have a standing order here, so we know that the patient, they have a positive sign or symptom. Who's going to do the test? Who's taking ownership of that? And when is it done in the exam routine? So that way I have the results. So we can do the capture, right? And then the results can be brought in to me later or typed into the EHR and they'll show up, you know, in, in my examination. So I think that it's, if, if you have a very pragmatic approach and include your team in how to do that, you overcome those barriers pretty quickly. And I find that the shortest path of success is not really trying to push the boulder you know, up the hill. It's yeah. just trying to remove the obstacles that's preventing mm. the boulder from rolling, right? So what we want to do is to bring our team in because doctors sometimes are oblivious to what their staff does when they're doing all of the pre-testing right. and how long it takes and stuff like that. So if they bring them in and say, look, here's what we're going to do. We have a test that takes approximately eight to 10 minutes total Right. Yeah. Capture is significantly less. Yep. So maybe it's, you know, three minutes for capture and then the patient gets on with everything else. How are we going to get that integrated in? And then what's the you know, follow-up process? And then I think you started off our conversation today talking about how doctors feel like they have to t do everything yes. all in one visit. Yes. Take a big, deep breath and step back from the edge of the cliff, right? They're not expecting an immediate you know, solution. What they want is somebody to explain what's going on. Start to add the value story. This is what your symptoms are. This is what our findings are. Those two things correlate 100%. The thing that I'm excited about is we have new technologies today that we can further diagnose and deliver great targeted treatment. Yeah. Right? So all of a sudden now I've got that patient in my ecosystem working with me on the pace that I want them to do based upon their individual severity. Yeah. And it's, it's taking control of the situation rather than letting the situation take control of you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, John, thanks for coming in. I don't. I think that's probably the best place to, to end this. Yeah, it'd be great. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thanks. All right. <laughs>